If you have your Bible, we're going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 4, and you guys can stand with me in honor of God's Word. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 4, I'm going to read the first eight verses of Deuteronomy chapter 4. It says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land and that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would come now. Your spirit would, would help us to, uh, to glean from this word. Open our, uh, open our hearts to receive this with gladness. Open our minds to uh, understand it. Open our eyes to see Jesus through scripture. And uh, we love you and I thank you so much for what you're going to do here today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're on the second week of talking about the law of Moses. And, and the reason I've decided to spend so much time on the law in this little mini-series that we're doing, it would be a third of what we're doing, is, is because when you read the Old Testament, when I read the Old Testament, it seems like the law is one of the most prominent themes in the Old Testament. There's the first five books the Jews call the law, the Torah. Then you've got all of the prophets who were men who upheld the law and enforced the law. You've got all of the, the stories that we love, the, the, the drama that takes place in the Old Testament are usually based around somebody breaking or keeping the law. And so, in my opinion, the law is a really big deal in the Old Testament. It's a massive theme that I think if you, if you miss what, what's happening here, you kind of, you, 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 you can't get a full grasp of what God is doing, um, even in the New Testament, in, in Christ and all those things. Um, I've told a couple of you, one of my biggest uh, issues with the recent uh, the, the television series, the Bible, on uh, the History Channel was that they spent a lot of time in the Old Testament showing great stories, but there was barely a mention of the law. There was, you know, Moses came down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments. Um, there was one scene where it looked like David was praying in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, which would have never happened that was that was forbidden but other than that there's not a whole you don't see a whole lot of law you don't see a whole lot of the ceremonies and all of the sacrifices and stuff that make up a lot of what's going on in the old testament and so i kind of that, that kind of bugged me about it because i feel like if you miss that stuff you miss a big chunk of what jesus did when he came because he said that he came to fulfill all of the old testament so we're taking 3 weeks out of a little 9 week series and learning about the law. And today we're going to talk about the second part of the law that God gave to Moses. And, and this is oftentimes called the judicial law or the civil law. Um, if you remember when we started, there's 
we're dividing this up into three sections. The moral law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law. Now, if you're flipping through your Bible and you're trying to find those headings, they're not in there. That's, that's not a biblical division. That's just something that church fathers came up with to help us understand what the different laws do. The intention for the law, maybe what they mean for us as we come in in the 21st century and we're reading them. And so it just helps us understand what the law is and, and what they mean. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give... A little general overview of the judicial law and what it is. Define some terms. Why do we call it that? What what do those laws uh, mean? Secondly, I'm going to walk through this passage that we read kind of quickly and get an idea of what Moses is saying there and what God is speaking through Moses. And then lastly, I'm going to answer three questions about the law with a, a focus on the judicial side of the giving of the law. That's where we're going. So, um... First of all, let's just define these terms. I think it helps for me anyway if somebody says, well, we call this the judicial law. Well, when I, when I hear the word law, I, there's, there's automatically a, a judicial side to any law. There's, when we think of um, judicial, the word judicial, our judicial system, we picture courtrooms, judges, black robes, a gavel, Judge Judy. That's what we think of when we think of the word judicial, and that's right. When you think of that word judicial, you should be thinking that. That's, this is a judging system, how people were judged. If they broke the law, this is what happens to somebody who breaks the law. Um, and that's, that's how we should think about it. The judicial law, a lot of times when you read it, and we'll see some examples, will carry with it the weight of a moral law. And it just says, when you break this, this is what happens. And so that's why we call it the judicial law. Now, I also said that some people call it the civil law. Same thing. When you take that term, civil, which means kind of how we relate to one another inside of a community. For example, the Civil War was not a war with another country. It was a war among states of the same union. So civil, meaning how we relate to one another. And then judicial, how we're judged and governed and, and the law is upheld. You put that together and what you get is in the judicial law are laws that concern how the Hebrews were to relate to one another in everyday life, in work, in, in you know, all of everyday life, how they related to one another. And then also the judgments that were to be carried out and the sentencing when people broke the law. That was, that's the judicial law. And then a lot of times, because the judicial law does carry with it sentencing and judgment and stuff like that, you'll read... Parts of the other sections of the law, like the ceremonial law or the moral law. If you break this law, this is what happens. That's a judicial law. And remember last week, we talked about the moral law, specifically the Ten Commandments. And we said that that's the foundation for all of the law. That's, that's the foundation. If you, get, if you can obey the Ten Commandments, everything else is easy. But as we learned that you know, the people did not obey, and, and usually we don't either. So when you read the judicial law, oftentimes you read parts of what is what immediately reminds you of the Ten Commandments. For example, I'll read this. In Leviticus chapter 19, um, it says, You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. 
but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Now we see in that, when we read that, we, we see you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name. But that reminds us directly of the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's almost verbatim, the Ten Commandments, or some of them. And then it comes in and says, you shall not oppress your neighbor. It kind of gives the implication. So because we don't lie, we deal rightly with our neighbors, with the people who work for us. And, and so forth. So you see how the judicial law is often moral law plus the implications. Because you don't lie, you will also not do these things. Because you don't bear false witness, you will also not do these things. And it kind of comes together in one judicial law. So that's the idea of the judicial law. When we read these, they're oftentimes, they're not completely separate from the moral law. They're just implications of the moral law. And I'll read a couple more examples as we, as we walk through this. Um, the text that we read in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4. I want to walk through this and learn a couple things about the law and what this has to do with us. I want to notice, first of all, some key words. In verse 1, you see the words statutes and rules. In verse 2, you see... Um, the word, you see the word command, you see the word commandments. In verse 5, you see statutes, rules, commanded again. In verse 6, you see statutes again. In verse 8, you see statutes, rules, law. You see how those, the, all of those words are kind of sprinkled throughout that whole section. And that helps us get an idea of what is being said here. What's the main point? Um, the word statutes here, a statute, is a clearly communicated prescription of how a, how a person should live. That's a statute. So that would encompass all of the law. God is clearly prescribing, this is how you're going to act as my people. The word rules, a rule here, means a judgment or the deciding of a legal dispute or a legal case. So you can see how that would tie into our judicial thought process there, the word rules. Then the word command or commandment, they both come from the same word that means like an order given or God gave these orders to give orders. So that means exactly how we would use it if we say the word commanded. It's to give orders or orders are being given. So God has given these orders to the people. And then lastly, the word law, which I've already said me, is the word Torah. When the Jews talk about the first five books, they call it the law, the Torah. It means instruction or teaching. So without getting too technical, with all those words, what we see is that God is the one steering this ship. Moses is speaking and he's talking about the law that God has given. God has come to Moses. He gave him the law on Mount Sinai. Then Moses is now speaking to the people. The book of Deuteronomy takes place just before the children of Israel go into the promised land and begin to conquer the nations that are in the promised land. Moses reads the law to them again. So that's what's happening. So God is, is steering this ship, so to speak. He's given judgments. He's given commands. He's given orders. He's given the people instructions on how they're supposed to live as they move forward. As his people. So the idea that, that I want to notice specifically is that God has spoken. We don't serve a, a silent God. We don't come to worship a mute God. We don't gather here and sing songs to the God of deism who created the universe and then just steps back and watches. 
We worship a God who speaks to us. He has given us His Word. He's involved in our lives. He comes back time and time again in Scripture and reiterates the promises and the covenants that He made. He sends prophets to uphold His law and to speak to His people. We serve a God who is active in redemption. God has spoken to us through His Word just like He did these people. He is a speaking, proclaiming God. He has spoken. So those are the key words. Some key phrases that help us see what's happening here. In verse 1, you see the phrase, Do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land. In verse 5, you should do them in the land. In verse 6, that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. So what we learn when we see those phrases that are throughout this passage, we, we get an idea of why God has, is giving this law. Why has He given them these rules? Why read the laws again at this point before they go into the land? And basically what we learn is, first of all, which we learned kind of last week, is, is that God is giving these rules so that this people, the Hebrew people, would be set apart from the nations. They would go into this land and they would look completely different. They, they lived different, acted different, dressed different, ate different. Everything was different. This was so that they would be set apart as a people for God. Secondly, when, when he says, that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, what we see there is that the other nations are going to look at Israel... See how they're acting, how they conduct themselves, how they're governed. And they would say, man, those people are smart. Look at the wisdom that they have. Look how they govern themselves. And they would see, you know, you guys got to tell us, how, do you, how did you come up with this? Where did this come from? This, these rules and the way you're conducting. And they could say, our God, Yahweh, gave us this law. And this was a, a missional tool that the people of God would use. To draw people to himself. Remember the, the, the law gives us a little bit of the character and the nature and the holiness of God. And so those people would be able to experience the character of God through watching his people obey the law. So in summary, God has spoken to his people. He's given instructions on how to live. He said, this is how you're supposed to do. This is how you judge one another. If, if somebody breaks the law, then this is what's going to happen. And he's doing all this so that when they go into the promised land, the land of Canaan, they would look different, act different, dress different, eat different. And those other nations would see how this people is and they would draw people to God. This was mission. In the Old Testament, this is mission. They would draw people to God. They would see the character of God in the law. And as they see God, then they would, hopefully, they would worship God for who He is. And then they would be changed. This, this worship is always the end goal. We, they, they wanted the other nations to worship God. And we, this, nothing has changed. We, we do, in different ways, the same thing. The end goal for us is worship. That's the end goal. Everything we do as Christians is to worship our God. Whether we are sharing the gospel, whether we're learning from scripture, whether we're, whatever we're doing. Teaching our kids scripture, it's all worship. We're worshiping God and that's the end goal. So when I preach, for example, I don't want to give, my, my goal is not to give you a life lesson. My goal is not to, to help you to delve into your heart and pull out some sort of, some sort of spiritual 
lesson. That's not what I do. I want to teach the Bible. I want you to see the character of God through Scripture. And like it says in 2 Corinthians, I want you to behold the glory of the Lord and then be changed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. That's what it says. So we behold the character of God through Scripture, how He has revealed Himself to us, and we're changed. That's the way we change, is by beholding the glory of God. And, and the end goal, of course, is always that we worship God. So in that facet, nothing's changed. So what I want to do is that there are common questions that come up when we talk about the law and, and the giving of the law. I want to talk about these laws and try to answer them specifically in a judicial mindset. Um, why did they need it? Is, is what comes to my mind. Why were the Ten Commandments not enough? Why couldn't God just write on stone tablets, hand them over and say, Alright guys, good luck, you got this, go for it. Why did that not work? Well the answer is, first of all, these people were sinners. Just like we are. They're, they're sinful. God had come to a sinful people and given them a law. Now remember we learned last week that the moral or the Ten Commandments were just a kind of official establishing of the moral standard that God had always expected. Nothing's changed except now it's written down and you better keep it. And up until that point, and even now, they're not able to keep it. Just like we're not able to, to fully and completely obey the law all the time. So God knew that He gave this law to a sinful people. So for Him to expect... Oh, well, now it's written on stone, so they got it. Well, that would have been foolish. God knew they couldn't obey the law because they were sinful people. And because they can't obey the law, there must be enforcement when the law is broken. That goes back to what we learned about the, the reasons for the giving of the law. If you remember, we've kind of already hit on it this morning, is that one of the reasons that the law was given was to reveal the character and the nature of of God. The law shows God's standard. This is what God expects. And so when we break the law, we fall short of God's standard. In Scripture, we read, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now I'm going to try to get us to that point. We've fallen short of God's standard. We have sinned against God when we break His law. To disobey God is to act as if your opinion, your desires, your pleasures, what you want in a moment is more important than what God has said to do. When we, when we sin, that's what we're doing. We're saying, I know God, you said not to do this, but in this moment right now, I really don't care what you have to say because I'm going to do my own thing. That's what we do. And when we do that, we, we take God's glory and we say, I understand your law, I understand your glory, I understand your standard, but for a second I just want to bring you down here and let, let me be God for a little bit because I've got something else I'm trying to do. And so we reduce God's authority to less than our authority. We make ourselves the boss and God's glory kind of gets trampled on. Every time we sin, when the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, a better phrasing would be all have sinned and lack the glory of God. We, we, we don't have it. We try to usurp His glory with our own. Now the problem is, God will not stand for that. God does not let us just do as we please, trample His glory, and He just sweeps it under the rug and says, no big deal. It's, I'm loving, hey, I love everybody, it's no big deal. He, he can't do that, because if He does that, then it makes it look like His glory doesn't mean that much to Him. When you read through Scripture, you will find out that God's glory, His for His 
namesake, his reputation is his most important goal in everything that he's doing. If you, a fun thing to do would be go through scripture and make a list of how many times you see for his namesake, for my namesake, for my glory. That's why God does what he does, everything that he does. And so when we disobey God, we're cheapening his glory, trampling his glory, and he won't stand for that. If he stands for it, he's not God because he can't let his glory be trampled all over. And that's what we do when we sin. So he must punish sin to maintain his perfect character. He he must. He can't just let it go. And I've said this many times. If somebody committed a sin on the street out here or broke a law and we took them to court and the judge said, Hey, I love everybody. I love you guys. Just let it go. It's no big deal. We we would say, Hey, get the judge out of here. This, This is no judge. Get somebody in here who knows the law, who can make a right judgment and get this person sentenced. Justice must be served. Well, God is the greatest judge, and so He must punish sin. And Romans 4.15 says the law brings wrath. When we see the law, it doesn't save us because we can't obey it. It just shows that we're sinners, and God must punish that. So, the second reason that God gave this law, first of all, because people are sinful and sin must be punished. Secondly, as we've already seen, this law was given to separate the Hebrew people from the other nations. And, and we've kind of already hit on this pretty good when you're reading the passage that these people would see the... It says, uh, surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. Uh, verse 8, what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law? The idea was that these people would see the wisdom with which God's people were governed... And they would worship God. It was a missional tool. Thirdly, the judicial laws reveal, and this is, this is a good one, reveal the depth of the sin of these people and, and also our sin, as we'll see. Um, it's interesting when you read some of these judicial laws and you see the severe punishments and then you read, keep reading in the, in the Old Testament and find out how many people break these laws anyway. For example, uh, Deuteronomy... Chapter 18, um, no, Deuteronomy 21, verse 18 says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This is our, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. So, disobedient son, drag him out and stone him. I'll show you another one. Deuteronomy twenty-two, twenty-two. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. So, call him adultery. Kill him. If, so we've got this... Rebellious son. If you've got a rebellious kid, drag him out and kill him. Yet how many times in the Old Testament do we read stories of rebellious sons? Over and over and over and over and over again. Two people caught in adultery. What do you do? Drag him out and kill him. Yet how many times in the Old Testament do we read stories of people committing adultery? They couldn't do it. If somebody tells me, hey, if you do this, you're going to be stoned to death. 
to me, it seems like I would kind of think, well, maybe I shouldn't do it. Maybe that's maybe I should make a better choice. They couldn't do it. So it reveals the depth of our sin because even with the harsh judgment of death, they're still doing it. They're still breaking the law. And that, that helps us to see the depth of our sin. It's so deep and so ingrained in our nature that even though in the New Testament it says, for the wages of sin is death. We know this. And yet how many times do we sin on a daily basis? Even though we know the wages of sin is death. And we'll, we'll kind of see the, the outcome of that later. So the, the judicial laws reveal the depth of our sin nature. And then lastly, the judicial laws are meant to drive people to absolute faith. We learned about this last week. Did these people in the Old Testament know that they were going to be putting their faith in a man called Jesus from Nazareth who would be crucified on a cross and come back from the dead three days later. Did they know that? No, they did not know that yet. Prophecies would be given later, but at this point, they didn't know. All they knew was, God has given me this law. I can't obey this law. God, I'm just trusting you. And we'll see next week about the ceremonial law. God, I'm just trusting you that killing these goats and these bulls is, is somehow covering me because... I sin every day. I've got to have faith in you, God, that you're going to be faithful to do what you said you were going to do. Does that make sense? So it it drives people to faith because they see, we see, we cannot do these things. We cannot obey these laws. And so it drives us to absolute faith. Second question. Do we still obey these laws? Very controversial topic. When you get to talking to people, they come to the Old Testament. And, and, and a lot of times what you'll hear in our culture is people say, no, the, the Bible is null and void. Because look, you don't, you don't stone a kid for disobeying his parents. You don't, we don't kill people for committing adultery. That's, that's for a different people, different time period, written by God who was angry and racist. And, and, and so, no, that's not for us. We don't do that anymore. We don't, we don't listen to the Bible. It's old and outdated. It's void. I don't think that's correct. And, and I'll tell you why. First of all, when it comes to which parts of the judicial law that we still adhere to, we must always remember the moral law. Remember, the moral law is foundational. The Ten Commandments, foundational. Jesus says he's come to fulfill it, not to abolish it. And so some things will continue on. And when we call these laws moral case laws because they, they carry with them, they're a judicial law, but they carry with them the weight of a moral law that God has put in place forever. Remember, the moral laws reveal something about the character and the nature of God. And so since God never changes, then there are some moral laws that never change. Is it okay for me to steal? No. Is it okay for me to kill people? No. Is it okay for me to take the name of the Lord in vain? No. The moral laws stay. And so, since the moral law stays, then there are some judicial laws that they're based on a moral law. They, the, the law itself doesn't change. We'll see in a minute that the punishment may change, but we still adhere to the moral laws. Now, I read from Deuteronomy 22, and I'm going to keep reading. I'll read that again and keep reading and just listen to how this plays out. If a man is found lying with the wife of a, or, yeah, a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. 
If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found. Then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver. And she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife, so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Okay. We could add to those laws. Those are specifically sexual sins. We could add to those, in the book of Leviticus, all the other laws about sexual sin, about bestiality. We could add to those things. And, and come up now. Now, do we still adhere to the, the rules or the, the statutes of those laws today? Yes. Sexual immorality is not okay. Because the Ten Commandments say you shall not commit adultery. That means you don't engage in sexual activity with a person or a thing that, that is not your spouse. You don't do it. And so... The implication would be, okay, you don't do it with a man who's, or a wife who's betrothed. You don't do it with a woman out in the wilderness. You don't do it with animals. You don't do it with your father's wife. You don't do it. So we have a moral law. You shall not commit adultery. But then there's all these specific implications that it's going to play itself out because God knew these people are going to have to have specifics because they're just not that bright. We're the same way. We, if, if it's not specifically outlined, we're just like, well, I mean, it doesn't say I can't do this. But God knew that. He knows how we are. And so he gives these, these implications about the law. You don't do that stuff. And so it unpacks all those things. The moral law underlines the judicial law. But the question is, what about the punishments? Because it just said if two people commit adultery, kill them. So the second way that we, we determine how we are to perceive these judicial laws and whether or not we still do this stuff is to ask the question, how did Jesus do it? How did Jesus, in the way he lived, unpack the, the, the laws and how, we're, how we perceive these laws? Um, a great example in Luke chapter 7. We read a story of a prostitute. It says a woman who was a sinner, more than likely a prostitute, comes in as Jesus is sitting and hanging out with a Pharisee named Simon. And she comes in and she washes Jesus' feet with her tears. And she dries his feet with her hair. And Simon, in his mind, is thinking, does Jesus not know who this woman is? Now, if they were obeying the judicial law and carrying it out just like it says... If this woman is known as a prostitute, she should have been dead a long time ago because you don't commit adultery. But she's not dead. And and so Jesus addresses this question. He tells her that her faith has saved her. He gives this parable of a money lender who forgives two different size debts. One is a huge debt. One is a little debt. The idea is this woman, because she is so sinful and she knows that she's so sinful... She falls on her feet, weeping and washing Jesus' feet because she knows how 
dirty and wretched she is. And that she, in, in the language of Matthew, she is poor in spirit. She's got nothing to offer but her tears and her hair because she knows it. Whereas Simon, the Pharisee, probably has a hard time finding anything in his life that he needs to be forgiven of. Because he obeys the law. I don't need forgiveness. I'm, I'm obeying the law. I'm not a prostitute like her. I don't need it. The idea is we all need it, but this woman is so sinful and she knows it that she, she falls down. She's been forgiven of a much greater debt. And Jesus tells her, your faith has saved you. So what we learn there. With, with Jesus as he comes and he shows us how this stuff plays out is that when Jesus comes, God is no longer working through a, an ethnically rooted theocracy. It's not about government. It's not about a people group. If you noticed in the laws that I read um, with the disobedient son, it says, so you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. The laws about Adultery, you shall purge the evil from Israel. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. In the Old Testament, God is working through a, an ethnic government, a group of people. He's, and he's, he's, he's working through what we would call a theocracy. God is the government. In the New Testament, Jesus comes and he starts preaching repentance. In light of the coming kingdom of heaven, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So we learn, as Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not a government. We're not going to build a, a castle. We're not going to have a drawbridge and a moat and horses and, and all that. It's not going to be that way. It's a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of heaven grows as repentance for the forgiveness of sin is preached to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus helps us see that when he comes, it's, when we sin, it's not automatic death penalties because he wants people to repent and be forgiven. We want, we want to be changed so he comes to seek and to save the lost. He's preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins rather than, oh, you're an adulterer, boom, you're dead. Oh, you disobeyed your parents, boom, you're dead. And, and I don't think we would want those, that, that old judgments. We, we're thankful for the repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So to answer the question, do we still obey these judicial laws? Sometimes we do. And sometimes the judgments or the sentencing have been lifted and alleviated for a time. Until, of course, at the end of time when all people are judged and, and the wages of sin is death. That is carried out. Question three, and this is where we'll end. How does Jesus fulfill the judicial law? We're, we're working through the, the gospel of Matthew. And we get to Matthew 5 and Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. So how does that work with the judicial law? That's what we're trying to ask ourselves. Jesus said it. We want to understand why he said it. First of all, we got to consider the reasons that we talked about that God gave the law. We've learned from the passage in Deuteronomy. We've learned that God is the one steering the ship. God is in control. God is in command. God has spoken. He has clearly communicated what He wants His people to do. He's given judgments for the people to obey. These are God's orders. He has given instructions on how to live as they move forward. God has spoken. In giving the law, God reveals His holy nature and His perfect standard. He's spoken to mankind and revealed who He is. In John 1, we learn that Jesus is the Word of God in human flesh. 
Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1 says that all the fullness of the deity, all of the fullness of God dwelt bodily in Jesus, dwells bodily in Jesus. Jesus is the final revelation of God to mankind. He's the final communication. We're not looking for more. I'm not waiting for God to speak again because Jesus is enough. He is the final revelation. We're not looking for, we're not expecting more. He is God in human flesh. Where Jesus, Jesus shows us the subject to which all of the law is pointing. It's pointing us to Christ. As we read the law, we see glimpses and, and, and shady images of the character of God. But when Jesus comes, we see the exact imprint. We see God in human flesh living among us. And we learn about the nature and the character of God. We don't stumble around trying to obey rules so that we can kind of understand what God is like. We just turn through the pages of Scripture and we learn about who Jesus is and what He did and, and how He spoke to people, the things that He preached and taught. We read the, the inspired writings of the apostles as they explained and, and unpacked a lot of what Jesus taught them. So we turn to the written Word of God and we see the living Word of God, Jesus, in Scripture. God has spoken in His law and then the Word of God lives among us in the flesh as Jesus. Secondly, Jesus fulfills the law in that he obeyed it perfectly. He did everything to the T. Perfect obedience, perfect submission to every law. The Ten Commandments and every subsequent implication that comes with the Ten Commandments, he did it. No question, he just did it. We don't even have to wonder because he kept all the law in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says this, and Peter is talking about suffering for being a Christian, suffering for righteousness' sake. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And here's the key He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, Jesus never sinned. He never, he never responded wrongly. He never responded in a way that God would not approve of when he was being threatened and beaten. He never sinned, and yet he was beaten and crucified for us. By His wounds, we are healed. The third thing about the judicial law that points us to Christ is the fact that Jesus Himself is the judge of all people. When we think about judicial, we think of law, courtrooms, robes, gavels. Someday, as we read in, in the book of Revelation, Jesus will stand in judgment over all people, good and evil. Jesus is the standard to which all men will be compared. He's the, the litmus water that we must all dip our lives into and pull out and see if we are lining up with Him. He's the chalk line that we line ourselves up with. He's the benchmark that we say, that's, that's my standard. He's the plumb line that says, this is, this is straight. This is how you live. He's the pattern that we want to be molded after and look like. Jesus is all of those things as He lives, just as He lives His life. And we read through the Gospels, we see judgment. Because we see Jesus 
And then I say, I'm, I'm not like that. I want to be, but I'm not. And we're immediately judged because we see Jesus as the perfect standard. And then also, at the end of time, Scripture says He will stand to judge everybody because He is the righteous and true judge. There must be judgment because God is holy. And Jesus is the judge. Fourth, because Jesus is the standard, and because we all fall short of the standard, and then when we come back and study the law, we see our inability to obey the law, and we're driven to absolute faith, we are delighted to find out that Jesus bore the penalties of our breaking the law on the cross so that we don't have to. We've, we've read several severe judgments in the Old Testament when people broke the law. When Jesus comes, He lays His life down as a ransom for His people so that we would not have to bear the punishment of our own sin. When He died on the cross, He absorbed all that penalty that was coming to us. That propitiatory death absorbed the wrath of God that was coming to me. God, Jesus did that on the cross for His elect so that we would achieve heaven. So that we could be made right with God again. And now, by faith, we are given the righteousness of Christ. He obeyed the law. He achieved that righteousness. And it's given to us by grace through faith in Christ. So I can say with that, anywhere I go, if you will have faith in Jesus and trust in Jesus, you will be saved. Because it's been bought. He died on the cross. It's done. And so I can preach that to the ends of the earth, which kind of leads to the last point as I want to see how these judicial laws point us to this universal scope of God's redemption and this massive plan that, that God is doing. Verse 6 of chapter 4 that we read says, Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. From the very beginning, God has been working on a global scale. When we read the Old Testament, and we see a lot of focus, a lot, all of the Old Testament focus is on this people group, the Jews. But we see intertwined throughout all this stuff, we see this stuff that makes us think, maybe it's, maybe it's not just about the Jews. Because he says here, do it in the land. You want these other people, they're not Jews, they're not God's chosen people, but we want them to see and worship God. It's amazing, and I, I would challenge you guys, it is, it's really hard to read through Leviticus Deuteronomy, the, the last half of Exodus, it's tough. But as you read through it, you will notice little, little phrases, little sentences that remind you that, that God is it's not just about the Jews. He makes these special laws for what they would call strangers or sojourners or maybe aliens in your translation. The purpose was to draw these nations to God. They weren't Jewish people. But He's given these, these rules and we see that, that global purpose. I'll read you a couple of verses from Deuteronomy 10. Uh, verse 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves, here it is, the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. The sojourner is like the stranger, the, the person that just happens to be wandering by. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. 
So God gives these rules, and you can see this stuff all throughout. God makes all these rules for people who are not Jews to benefit them. You know, don't, don't glean the harvest all the way up to the edge of your field. Leave a little bit so that if somebody's wandering by or somebody is a widow or an orphan, they can't fend for themselves, they'll have food. All of these laws, God has, has, has given these rules given to benefit those outside of the community of faith in, in this time period. And I've said this many times as well. In the Old Testament, God's mission is centripetal. That means moving to the center. They were to obey the law in the land. And the nations outside would see the people obeying the law. And they would be drawn to the Lord and say, what a mighty God they have. I want to be a part of that people. They could join the nation But because of the Great Commission in the New Testament, go therefore into all the earth, it's now centrifugal. It's working out from the center. We, as Americans, are products of the centrifugal mission of God. We, a lot of times, we have this mindset like we are the center of the world. And man, we just got to get those missionaries out. And that is true. And, and, I'll, and I'll hit that in a second. That's true. But we are, I think if the statistics are still the same, like the third or fourth least Christian nation in the world. It won't be long before Africa is the center of Christianity of the world. People are sending missionaries to us. We're not the center. We're not the Christian nation that we were founded on that we used to be. And, and I don't know that we ever were. We are products of this mission. When, when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. We don't read that and say, well, this is our Jerusalem and that's our Judea. And that's no, we are the ends of the earth. We are the product. And when, when the, the apostles spread and the, and the church spread in the early centuries, that's how we that's why we're here. So we see this centrifugal nature of the mission of God. So now for us, rather than just obeying rules and hoping people see us obey these rules, We are redeemed. We are bought with the blood of Jesus and then sent out to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. So, let's be bold in doing that. It's it's our commission. Christ, we, we read in Revelation that Jesus died to ransom a people from every tribe and nation and tongue on earth. So, let's be about that mission. That's what we do. We see these laws and how... God was working through this people and we look back and, 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 and this points us to Christ. We can't obey this, but Jesus died for my sin. I put my faith in Jesus. I trust Jesus. I'm saved. That's great news. I want to go tell everybody, stop trying so hard to please God and just have faith. Trust Jesus and God will change you from that gospel. And when we look at Christ and the point of this series To see Christ in the Old Testament. Because when we behold the glory of the Lord, we are changed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next.